When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Or Bill is creaking away on this couch, man. I'm Doug. And I was thinking about this. I hogged the intro, so I think we should make the intro where like, I say my name and then you guys can say your own name. Because I think on other podcasts they do that. So I'm going to say, I'm Doug. I'm Ari. I'm Bill. And we appreciate you guys joining us again. This is our bowl preview for the Fiesta Bowl on December 31st. You guys know what it is. It's on New Year's Eve. Make your plans. Uh, Bill, Ari, and I are all going to be in Arizona. And this is it. So we're going to be out there. Um, the team arrives December 26th. We're going to have interviews with everybody December 27, 28, 29. Uh, quick interview with the coaches on the 30th, game on the 31st. So those days, 27, 28, 29, you need to be at cleveland.com. Even if you're not at work, make sure like when you're at the store taking back your gifts that you didn't want, be on your phone checking our stories because we're going to have a ton of stuff coming from Arizona. But, we have apps. I don't know if people know we, that. We have an app. Yeah, here, yeah. give an app plug. Yeah, we have uh, – for Android and for Apple, I believe, we have one for each. Just search like cleveland.com, Ohio State, in the iTunes store – we're on Google Play, I think, is where you get the Android one, and we're there, and it has all our stories. And you'll get, like, push notifications and stuff, too, when there's big stories. Yes, I like apps. It's smooth. It's a smooth app. Enzerts. Actually, it is a very well-done app. Yeah, shout-out to the IT guys. So, read that. So, we're going to be previewing this like crazy from Arizona, but this is our bowl preview from Ohio. We've spoken to all the players. We talked, like, 15 Ohio State players, Urban Meyer, four assistants, just got a little Clemson knowledge, so we are um, going to break this down for you. And where I think we want to start is I am always fascinated by equal talent games, equal talent games, because those are more fun. That's when scheme and strategy and trick plays and momentum and mistakes and turnovers flip the game, because a lot of times Ohio State could do a million things wrong and still win because the talent advantage is so gigantic. Is that what we're dealing with here, Bill Landis? Is this an equal talent game? Yeah, I think so. It's the playoff. I think even maybe if Ohio State was playing Washington, it wouldn't quite be an equal talent game. But I think anytime you're in the playoff, it's equal talent. Um, even when Ohio State played Oregon in 2014, you could argue that Oregon was slightly lesser talented than Alabama. But I think it's all it's the four best teams in the country, man, even if you had – beef about whether or not Washington should have been in. Um, yeah, this is equal talent. And, and I'm trying to think, like, all, all the close games Ohio State's played this year, um, Wisconsin, Penn State, Michigan State, Michigan, I don't know if any of those games were, were completely equal talent. I think Michigan had equal talent, certainly, uh, on defense. Um, but I think across the board, both sides of the ball, equal talent versus equal talent, I think this is probably the first time that Ohio State's facing a team that's built Pretty similarly to the way it's built. Because even like, I think Penn State should be in the playoff instead of Washington. I wouldn't say Penn State is equal talent to Ohio State. No. I think Michigan played better than Ohio State when they played each other in that game. Ohio State just happened to win in double overtime. I would not say Michigan is quite equal talent to Ohio State on the field, 22 on 22. Oklahoma was close, maybe, right? I mean, it's funny when we look back. I'm going to take a 30-second break to talk about Oklahoma for a second. Can you believe Oklahoma had two offensive players invited to the Heisman ceremony when the Ohio State defense basically dominated Oklahoma that game? I thought that was so weird. I would was, when right. I watched that game the third week of the season, I didn't think to myself, "Wow, this is a team with two Heisman finalists." That's what happens when you play Big Twelve defenses for eight games or whatever it is. Okay, so I did the math. 
All right, we're all, now we're back to Clemson. Do it. No, not Clemson. Equal talent games. Oh, but I okay. guess I did. Oh, the, I went and I added it up. You did math. I tried. It's I, playoff time. Baby. Here's the always doing math. I feel like it's possible that I did it wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but I went back and I decided that Ohio State has played eight games in the Urban Meyer era against equal talent teams. Do we want to play name those equal talent games? Ooh. We can do it. We can, and I can, I'll do you. I can give you the records each year, and then you can guess okay. from that. You guys, now listen. Play along. We're going year by year. Year by year. We'll start in 2013, and I and you. And We're you not might, doing 2012. I mean, 2012. I didn't add up. That's fine. You know what? Because they weren't talent. It's not Urban Meyer. It yet. wasn't Urban Meyer stuff yet. Right, that makes sense. That's, that was my thought process. So, um, and you guys might argue with me and say these should have been or they shouldn't have been. Starting in 2013, when they had an undefeated regular season. Right. I put them in total because this counts bowl games. 0 and 2 in 2013, and it should be fairly simple yeah. for 2013. That's Michigan, Michigan State and the Big Ten Championship and Clemson. Yes, the only two games they lost that year. So we're going to say the 12 games leading up to that, when they were 12 and 0, were none not of those equal, were equal talent games. And they did play Penn State. They played Michigan. They almost lost to Michigan. And they almost lost to Michigan. by They won by one point, but Tyler I don't even Powell, know. I, I, point pick. I also kind of feel like including Michigan State on that list is pushing it. But I don't know if you can't not include the team that won the conference. I mean, you, right. I mean, like that we're talking was, about talent. That was guys. Connor Cook. That was the no-fly zone secondary. Yeah. That was Shalik Calhoun. I, that that's Michigan why, State team had some dudes. So I, yeah. so I put them on the list. So they're 0-2 so far 0-2 in 2013. 2013. I agree with that. Do you agree with that? I buy that, yeah. Okay. okay. Moving on to 2014, I put them at 2-0. 2014, uh, the only two you would have called it were the two playoff games. Yes. Alabama and Oregon. And they played Virginia Tech. I do not count Virginia Tech. They lost to Virginia Tech, even though they had more. Ohio State had more talent. They went to Penn State and won in overtime. I still don't count Penn State. No. Close games doesn't mean close talent. Do we agree? What yeah. about? I would include Michigan State that year. Michigan State I, at Michigan State. I didn't, and I could be wrong about that. Michi- that was still, the big game. That Michigan was the turning State point. State won eleven games and, and won the Rose Bowl that year over TCU. Right? Okay, so I can change it to three and a half. And there's no other debate in there unless you want to do Michigan, but no. it wasn't. No, not yet. So, Are we agreed on Michigan State? And then they I beat think, Wisconsin yeah. 59 to nothing, so oh. you can't put Wisconsin either. I would, I don't no. think. I would say three. So, so far through two years, three and oh. they're okay. three and two. Three and two overall, okay? Okay. 2015, I did one and one. Notre Dame and Michigan State? Yeah, the wins Notre Dame, losses Michigan State, and you guys remember the schedule last year. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything in there. They I mean, played the, Virginia the only, Tech. The, the hard thing is, like, again, for instance, in 2014, the Wisconsin game that we're now not calling equal talent, Wisconsin was favored that game. Yeah. But I think, honestly, if you're talking about talent, no, it's not equal talent. The Michigan game that we're now talking about, Michigan was favored. But Ohio State was coming off the Michigan State loss, Jim Harbaugh's first year. That was a good Michigan team, but I don't think we're talking equal talent, right? Not, qu- not quite. I think it's very close. But and we quite. can't just, like, pretend – we can't just do every single time Ohio State wins that it's not equal talent and then right. penalize them every single time. Which we do sometimes. And I think yeah. that we're not giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, so. I don't think it's – but I don't think that Michigan – that Michigan team had two guys off last year's team that were drafted and they brought everybody back. And we're not to this year. I would not call The whole reason why we – I wrote the story. The whole reason why we – we talked about talent gap for this year's preview because it was so big last year. So we can't go back and nope, pretend like it's I agree. not. Yeah. So 2-0 last year? 1-1 one one last year. 1-1 one one last year because they lost to oh, Michigan, right. they lost Michigan State. State. And beat Notre Dame. Yes. And that yeah. Notre Dame team was very And those talented. two games yeah. are weird. Notre Dame was talented, but like Michigan State, again, went to the playoffs. So we have to give it to them. All right. And then this year, 2016, they are 2-0 and so far. Even though they have the best resume in the world. I only gave them credit for beating an equal talent team, and I didn't even count Penn State. Michigan and Oklahoma. Maybe they could be 2-1. and one. Penn State is not equal talented. I don't know. No, I, that's what you said no. in the beginning. I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. So 2-0 would be I put Oklahoma, and I put Michigan. We said at the beginning, though, that maybe Michigan's not still not quite there just yet. But, but they're going to have – But they're going to they have, have double-digit draft picks. They had like 18 senior starters. They're going to have double digit. I mean, you've done. I wrote an entire story about yeah. how Michigan closed the gap. So and and that it's veteran talent, especially. Right. Right. 
they had some, you know, Peppers, Jordan Lewis, Jake Butt, two receivers. The whole, yeah. I, I think, I think we're it's close enough to call. I feel pretty talent. comfortable calling it equal talent. Okay. So Urban Meyer, according to those games, is sixty-one and five overall, but six and three in equal talent games. So he's fifty-five and two with the talent edge. And six and three in equal talent games. Six and three in equal talent games is pretty damn good. Yeah. Because I remember, you know, that was always a thing with Jim Tressel when uh, at the end of his run at Ohio State, they won six straight Big Ten titles from 2005 to 2010. And then they would get to those, you know, they national championship game in 2006 and 2007, the Fiesta Bowl against Texas in 2008. It was a lot of those when they got to the equal talent games because they had better talent than the Big Ten. When they got to equal talent, they didn't win. So six and three against equal talent is pretty good. And the one thing I want to say about sixty-one and five is that also includes the twelve from two thousand twelve. We didn't factor, so keep that in mind. Yeah, which which again probably is. Oh, I mean, you know, their non-conference that year there wasn't anybody who would have been equal talent, and you know, it's they didn't Brady play in the postseason. Whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I think we're okay with that. So six and three is an equal talent. You would judge that six and three record as what adjective? Uh, excellent. I don't know. That's pretty. It's the first thing I was thinking in my head was excellent. So you said what I was thinking. Just yeah. So that makes you think. Now the uh, the reason for that exercise, we hope you played along on the podcast, was to figure out what they're going to do against Clemson. Because Clemson is equal talent. So now, do you feel good about Ohio State's chances? Or not so good about Ohio State's chances in what is an equal talent game. Well, it'll be interesting to figure out, and this will take. I mean, we have to do a lot of thinking. It's like they played nine equal talent games, but like, is which of those teams was the most talented, and is it this like going to be this Clemson? Yeah, because like equal to talent too fluctuates because Ohio State's talent level changes. Right, and like Alabama in twenty fourteen was loaded because Alabama was always loaded. This Clemson team looks really good, man. It, but what's funny to me is that the Alabama team that they beat was beaten by was statistically the deepest Ohio State team in the history of the program. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Ohio State is not nearly, in my opinion, as talented this year as they were in 2014 or 15 from an NFL standpoint. Well, we just don't know yet. I mean, we don't know. I mean, we didn't know in 2014. So maybe in 2018, we'll look back and say, this is the most talented 2014 team ever. Or a bunch of Maybe jumps. Mike Weber will be a first-round draft pick <laughs> yeah, in three years. I, I'll tell you what, though. that <clears throat> We thought the year was going to be 2015. A lot of people had targeted that year when you looked and saw the 2013 class would be in their third year. The Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott class are going to be juniors in 2015. Obviously, that didn't happen for the playoff that year. But really, when you look at the end of 2014 – which may as well be 2015, because by then, same, all yeah. those guys had grown up. Yeah. Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott and Darren Lee and Vaughn Bell, all those guys were who they were, right? They weren't finding themselves anywhere. Maybe maybe they were at the beginning of 2014, but by the end of 2014, they were the players that they are, and they were supplemented by Devin Smith, by Evan Spencer, by Michael Bennett. By a lot of key guys that really now, when you look backwards on it, were gone in 2015, right? So it does almost make sense to me when you said that 2014 team for Ohio State was the most talented. I think when you think about it really like that, you know, from I mean, top you, to bottom, they had Devin Smith and Michael Thomas together yeah. and Evan. They're three receivers. So they had Devin Smith, who was a second round pick as a deep threat. Because Michael when, Thomas yeah. was a second-round pick, and, and Urban Meyer called Evan Spencer their MVP. Those were their three receivers. He got drafted, but like sixth round, right? Sixth round. Yeah. They would cut their toes off for a receiver like that. What's crazy, too, team. is that like you think about 2014 in the context of the 2013 class, I think it's very easy to forget the older players on that team that helped, which is yeah. your entire point. But like it's so easy to forget. Devin Smith was a beast, and Devin Smith is in the league. And I know that... A lot of times people will look at the NFL and they'll see people who are doing really well in the NFL and that's how they judge it. In my opinion, if you're a player on a college team who spends any time on an NFL roster, regardless of whether you're a successful NFL player, that means you're a very good football player. Regardless, 
right? So, yeah. like, Devin Smith is still on the Jets, and I know that he's battling injuries, but the fact that he was the best deep threat that was on Ohio State's team since Ted Ginn, right? Pure deep threat? I can't even I think. Mean, I mean, better. I mean, he's one of the great deep threats in the last so, 10 years in college football. And don't forget, like, the, the – and it's like, feels you're calling them, like, supplementary. Like, Michael Bennett was drafted. Wasn't he? Oh yeah, I mean, everybody yeah, who's was drafted, like, even like, like Steve Miller, who had like a crazy pick six, and that, like he did, was not drafted, but he got signed. Like Darrell Baldwin got signed, um, Curtis Grant got signed, Duran Grant went to the NFL. He was drafted, like, fourth round pick. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, where maybe sure. maybe it is maybe it is like I don't know if it's substantially more talented than it was twenty four then than it is now, but I think I think it's substantially more talented with what the information that we know. I think, right? Yeah, I mean, because yeah. like you can't lose. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, the whole we didn't know, but I do think that going into the playoff in 2014, we did kind of know. See, I don't think that like Darren Lee becoming a first-round pick was a foreign thought when we were going to the playoff well, here's in 2014. Like, as but well. nobody thought they would beat Alabama. Right, we all picked them to lose to Alabama. Yeah. The whole world picked them to yeah. lose to Alabama. Right. Except Austin. So, I mean, that is... That is not going to be the case now, but it's not that people think Ohio State's better. It's that they think the opponent's easier. Listen, for real, and this has devolved into a little bit into, which is maybe more interesting comparing 2016 to 2014. The 2014 offense for Ohio State that went into the playoff, once you had some idea of what Cardale was, was, I would say, substantially better than this offense. Yes. And now if we want to play the game of, I think you could maybe argue this defense, you know, with the way the secondary is played, um, with a good defensive line they can rotate, with the way Raekwon McMillan, Jerome Baker, and Chris Worley have played, maybe you'd pick this defense, but I think you would pick that offense. The 2014 offense is better than the 2016 offense by a greater margin then the 2016 defense is better than the 2014 defense. Yeah, I think part yeah. of the – like, when you look back and say who we picked, all three of us picked Alabama, right? Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. But I also think that the quality of the opponent – when you're playing Alabama, it's hard to predict – it's hard to predict anybody's going to beat Alabama. It just happens it sometimes. Happen very often, yeah. And when, it, and when it does, it just falls out of the sky. You Don't call yourself a genius by picking, oh, I knew they were going to beat Alabama. That's not the way it works. I think that that's part of the reason, but I don't think it's even a debate. And I don't know if I'm crazy between this year's team across the board as 2014. I, would, I don't think it's a debate. I would argue that this defense is better. I think that the, the, and it sounds crazy to say in hindsight because of all the NFL talent that that defense eventually had, but I'm not so sure we thought that defense was great going into the playoff. Like, do you guys think this current defense is great? Because I'm pretty high on the high seats defense right now. Uh, Do I go into this Clemson game thinking Ohio State's defense is going to give Clemson a ton of problems? I think Clemson's going to score between 28 and 31 points. And that's kind of the – and I think that's kind of a lot. I you have 35 to Alabama in 2014. Um, yeah. And I think whether or not I pick Ohio State to win is going to be based on whether I decide if I think Ohio State's offense can get it up enough for one game to get into the mid-30s potentially. I think the one thing, if I was going to talk about comparing the two defenses – as good as the defensive line this year has played, and I think they've been good, mm-hmm. they don't have Joey Bosa. Yeah. Joey Bosa is a guy you have to game plan for, is a freak, is a monster, is a guy who's tearing up the NFL as a rookie. That pass rush, that disruptive force up front, I mean, this secondary I would take. I think I take the whole back seven and don't think twice about it. But, boy, Joey Bosa, man. No, I, I agree with that. And, like, he's he's good enough that it makes that much of a difference that would give you pause. But I think – It's like – because I feel so stupid because, like, I, like, looked at you and rolled your eyes when you said that. And then, like, when you think, think twice about it. about it, like, I'm not saying you're wrong, you know, because of – I just you, – you remember that team and what they did. And it's hard to compare a team that hasn't played the playoff yet versus the team that did it so well. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of clouds your judgment a little bit. But then you realize you're seeing draft analysts saying that Marshawn Lattimore is a top five pick. Yeah, and then when you start remembering that, you know, Malik Hooker's a top ten. Everybody's a top – the entire 12 people on Ohio State's defense is a top ten pick. 
but it just, I think maybe we're, I'm underestimating Ohio State's defense a little bit in my mind because I haven't seen them do it yet in the playoff. But I, I still think I'm taking both sides of the ball from 2014. Here's a, uh, 2014, I'm just trying to think about it. 2014, the defensive tackles were Michael Bennett and Adolphus Washington. That is way better than this year. Yeah. That whole defensive line in 2014. And you is, go defensive line is, over back is significantly seven better than this year. Not because this year's defensive line isn't good, but because that defensive line was excellent. And the other thing I'm going to think about is, and we talked about it a lot, when I, Darren Lee, even I think maybe even more so in 14 than in 15, was a special kind of playmaker at linebacker, I thought. Sugar Bowl MVP, right? Defensive I mean, MVP. he really, and again, Jerome Baker and Chris Worley as outside backers have played really well this year. Darren Lee was a freaky monster for a while there. And I so, think that Jerome Baker has Darren Lee in him. He does have Darren Lee I in him. I think Jerome Baker might be Darren Lee next year. And I, but I don't think he's, he's not Darren Lee yet. I, if he, I if, don't know, man. If he like, played Jerome in the playoff. Jerome Baker did Dar- Darren right, Lee-ish fish, things. Right, right. Who's doing the – is Jerome Baker going to turn into Darren Lee in the playoff? Is that's all we're going to that? do. Like, Jerome Baker wasn't a three-star, so he can't make the comparison. I mean, Jerome Baker, I'm calling Darren Lee a freaky monster. Jerome Baker, like, jumps nine feet in the air makes one-handed interceptions. I mean, and he has defensive touchdowns in their biggest games. Like, if you kind of look back at it, I think he Jerome, has, like, I'm really high on Jerome, Jerome Baker. Jerome Baker, Rayquan McMillan, Chris Worley, Curtis Grant, Joshua Perry, Darren Lee. I'm taking the guys this year as a group. I think Darren Lee's better than all. Like, he's the best one out of those six players. But I'm taking this I'm like, I'm high on this Jerome Baker-Lee comparison because he almost had a pick six in the Michigan game, too. But the thing that's as hard is yeah. that, like, Darren Lee, I mean, we all talked Darren Lee. Darren Lee was like, I mean, we talked a lot about those guys. There were so City. many guys who just were dripping with sweat. Say it. Swag. swag. <laughs> Jerome Baker is so easygoing. <laughs> yeah. Is he not? Like, Jerome Baker, like, is a confident guy, but Jerome Baker is not going to, like, light you up in an interview and just talk about, like, how they're going to kill people. Like, he's just much more relaxed. So I, Rick I, McMillan's relaxed. Except when you imply that. Yeah, yeah. Clemson we, might score a lot of points. You can Ray, tell him that real quick if you want. Rayquan McMillan, someone asked if it was going to be a shootout between Ohio State and Clemson. And Rayquan McMillan almost like looked sick to his stomach <laughs> thinking about the idea. It was insulted that the Ohio State defense would allow this game to turn into a shootout. Um, listen, we've talked nothing about this game. <laughs> Here's we what we're going to do. Dan Hope is a guy who covers Clemson for the Anderson Independent Mail in South Carolina. He's an Ohio State grad. He graduated in 2014. He was around that 2014 Ohio State team. He's now been covering Clemson for two years. We're going to catch up with him and help you guys get to know Clemson a little bit. If you're an Ohio State fan listening to this who is not an expert on Clemson, we think Dan's going to help you out. So we'll give Dan a call, talk Clemson with him. And then we will come back and maybe we'll get to the thing we actually thought we were going to talk about. All right, Dan. So thank you for joining us on Buckeye Talk. We're going to pick your brain for a while here uh, on Clemson as we get ready for this Fiesta Bowl. Um, I want to start maybe on the on the side of the ball that's a little less exciting. But this Clemson defense, um, Ohio State has not thrown the ball real well this year. What is Clemson like in the secondary and with its pass coverage and pass rush? If Ohio State has not been a great throwing team all the time, what's Clemson like to try to throw against? You know, I think going into the year, that was probably the area that would have been circled as the biggest concern for Clemson. They replaced three starters in that area. Uh, three guys who were all now playing in the NFL. So it, it was an area that was expected to be a concern, but uh, the, the Tigers have actually been better than expected in that area. I mean, Cordray Tankersley, the one returning starter, uh, he's an All-American corner. He, he's had a great season. He's typically pretty much a lockdown guy on one side of a ball. Uh, that other cornerback spot, they've rotated few through, through a few guys, Mark Fields, Marcus Edmond. Ryan Carter, but they've all played pretty well. I mean, they there really hasn't been many games this year where Clemson has been beaten uh, by receivers on the outside. They they've been you know really good at stopping teams with perimeter passing game, and they haven't you know really had any receiver go off for a big game against them. Uh, the, the one concern that Clemson has had in pass coverage is covering the tight end. 
and, and covering backs out of a backfield. So I think that's the area that if you're Ohio State, you might want to look to exploit. And they don't always do well with unconventional receivers, receivers going over the middle of the field. Uh, a guy like Ben Bolwer, who's a really good linebacker b- between the hashes, but you get him out in a coverage matchup, he-, he can be exploited. So I think that's what you're looking to exploit if you're Ohio State, especially since Ohio State's wide receivers aren't that good. Uh, you're you're going to find ways. Uh, maybe it's with a Curtis Samuel. You know, Maybe you get you know your tight ends more involved. But I think that's probably what you're looking for is maybe kind of getting guys over the middle uh, where Clemson might leave some gaps because that's what really hurt them in their loss to Pittsburgh. And it's been kind of their weakness for the past couple of years on, on pass coverage. Dan, this is Bill. Uh, when we saw Ohio State play Michigan, Michigan – Quite a few times, put Jordan Lewis its best corner on Curtis Samuel in the slot. Um, is that? Do you think Clemson might use Tankersley and then take him out of that outside corner spot and put him in the slot if that means covering the best receiver Ohio State has? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at all if they did that because it's it's evident that Ohio State is taking Curtis Samuel very seriously. I mean, David when he compared him to Sammy Watkins the other day, Brent Venables also had a lot of praise for him. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they do that. They, they have done that before, both of Tankersley this year and Mackenzie Alexander before this year, uh, taking their best corner and, and moving them if there's a guy they think they need to cover. So uh, I, I think they'll experiment. I'd expect Ryan Carter to, to play a lot in the slot as well because that's really where he's best. And I, I think they'd feel comfortable using Carter in a slot, even on a guy like Samuel, but uh, I, I think Samuel's the type of guy you're probably going to move guys around and make sure you have your best matchup on him, because that's certainly the one guy that Clemson knows can really hurt him. Why did Clemson give up so many points to Virginia Tech? You know, I think they kind of left their foot off the gas pedal, to be honest. I, I think that you know early in the game, they were pretty dominant on, on the defensive side of the ball, and and then they, they kind of started to let Virginia Tech back into the game. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, there was one play that really stood out where they didn't rush anybody at Virginia Tech at all. It, it was kind of a busted play on Clemson's part, and that led to a 41-yard pass completion and ultimately led to a touchdown for Virginia Tech. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of, again, some of those missed assignments, you know, maybe guys not being in the right position, they are, but you know that's been the one concern with Clemson is at times, especially on the defensive side of a ball, as a game wears on, they start to lose their steam. They're typically dominant in the first quarter, but a lot of times when a game gets into the second half, the defense will start to wear down. Uh, could be a depth issue, especially at the linebacker and safety spots, and they start to let teams back in the game. So that's certainly something Ohio State will look to exploit as well. Dan, we. Were uh, I mean, you were around Ohio State in 2014 when they went on a national championship run, and the following year in 2015, um, they were very talented and had a lot of players back, but they seemed to just get by every week until it eventually bit them. And I think from afar, the general idea is that Clemson is a lot like Ohio State was last year, this year, if that makes sense. What is your diagnosis of the reason why Clemson, State, or Clemson returned as many players as they did um, from a team that played in the national championship game and might not have really been that dominant during the year when maybe they were supposed to be. Yeah, I, I actually drew that comparison myself, having watched both of those teams. That you know, I, I thought there were a lot of similarities between last year's Ohio State and this year's Clemson. Even though Clemson didn't win the title last year, uh, I think this is a team that went into the year uh, with expectations around that Clemson football program. That it had truly never had before. You know, I mean, Ohio State might be a little more used to those expectations, but this was probably the first time in Clemson football history that they were going into the year as a number one ranked team, a national championship favorite. So uh, I think some of those expectations did get to their head, just like I think might have happened at Ohio State last year. And you know, there were a lot of games, even before they lost to Pittsburgh. You know, they really should have lost to NC State. And there were a lot of games where they didn't really play quite up to their ability. And I think they, they kind of backed their way into that loss. They maybe kind of needed that loss as a wake-up call. And, you know, I, I just think that they haven't always executed as well. I think 
the the offense, everybody expected, well, the offense is going to be better. They've got all these guys back. they got Mike Williams back. But the offensive line hasn't been as good this year. Uh, and they just haven't always been as sharp on the offensive side of a ball. Uh, the defense is the area of it you would have expected more drop-off. And I think the defense has actually really not had much drop-off. I think they've had some of the same issues as last year. Um, but they've probably been a little bit more consistent on that side of the ball. And then special teams, they've actually been a lot better than they were last year. So I think a lot of it was the offense came into the year with such high expectations, which they should. They have NFL players at pretty much every position, but just didn't quite ever hit their stride. Uh, started to get played better the last few weeks of the year, and that's what they're going to need in the college football playoffs. I want to follow up on that NFL players thing because I want to talk talent level. But before we leave the defensive side, is Brett Venables really a genius? Like he just won the Broyles Award, right, as the best assistant yes. coach? How good is he? I, I think he's certainly one of the best of country at what he does. I mean, this is this is the second year in a row where he's replaced nearly his entire starting lineup and has still had one of the best defenses in the country. He He's just done an outstanding job of reloading, replacing guys who went on to the NFL, and then rebuilding that defense right back up. Uh, his defenses have been at or near the top of the nation in tackles for loss pretty much every single year. I believe they're second this year and were number one each of the last three years. So they bring a lot of pressure up front. Uh, he's certainly an aggressive-minded coach. You know, he, he, he is someone who wants to get after a quarterback, and, you know, they've done that with a lot of consistency. And, you know, he comes up with really good game plans. I mean, he, he typically finds a way to take out other team's strength. The only time we really didn't see that this year was the Pittsburgh game, which they lost, but he really does a good job of figuring out what another team does well and putting his players in the right position to stop that. I'll be curious to see what he does with Samuel then. That'll yeah. be interesting. Uh, the talent level. Again, you, you saw Ohio State up close for a while. We talked a lot last year. Ohio State had 10 guys drafted in the first three rounds, 12 guys drafted overall. But Clemson had nine guys drafted last year, four in the first three rounds. Is, is the overall talent level on both sides of the ball at Clemson, is it basically equal to Ohio State right now? And if it is, how did it get that way? I, I think it is. I, I think that they, you know, really, I mean, both sides of the ball, you, you've got NFL players uh, and a lot of them, I mean, offensively, Certainly Deshaun Watson, is he's a potential top 10 draft pick. Wayne Gallman at running back. They have probably four or five future NFL wide receivers. Jordan Leggett, he's a future NFL player at tight end. Mitch Hyatt's a top talent at left tackle. You go to the defensive side of a ball, probably two future early first round picks on the defensive line in Dexter Lawrence and Christian Wilkins. Um, Cordray Tankersley's another guy who's going to be a early drafted player on the defensive side of the ball and just really, you know, potential pros at every position. So they've done an outstanding job. I mean, one of the things that stands stood out to me looking at this year's college football playoff and last year's NFL draft were the three teams that had the most players picked in the NFL draft last year were Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson. And they're the top three teams in the college football playoff this year. So uh, those three programs right now seem to be bringing in and developing more talent than any other teams in the country. And certainly that's been commonplace at Ohio State and Alabama over the years. But, you know, I think Dabble Sweeney's just done a really good job at building up this Clemson program and, and making it an elite program. And uh, I think talent breeds more talent. I think now you get to a point where Clemson's had a pattern now of having first-round draft picks and having a bunch of players drafted. And players who are looking at the school to go to, they, they see those numbers and they think, if I'm going to get to the NFL, uh, this is one of the best schools I can go to to have a chance to get there. So I think he's just building that track record now at Clemson. They've had great continuity in their staff. I mean, everybody on the staff right now is coaches who were there since at least last year and many of them for five plus years. So that really helps. They've done an excellent job in recruiting 
and an excellent job in talent development, taking guys who weren't necessarily top-notch recruits and building them up into being NFL-caliber players. Because, Dan, when you look at the recruiting rankings, it's Ohio State, Alabama, and everybody else. So do you think that it's even more so of a development thing there at Clemson than maybe even at Ohio State and at Alabama because they're bringing in five-star prospects all over the place? I'm not saying Clemson doesn't, but they're not quite at the same level as Ohio State and Alabama from a recruiting standpoint. But at the same time, they seem to be having comparable draft outputs. Yeah, I think certainly uh, talent development's been huge. You know, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of coaches on the staff who've been here a long time. You know, it, most of the players on this Clemson roster, they've had one position coach their entire time here. So that really helps because instead of having to learn from a different coach every single year, you're getting the same coach and you're able to continue to develop and learn from somebody who kind of sees you from start to finish. So I, I think that helps a lot. And you have a lot of really good assistant coaches on the staff. You know, Brent Venables, you know, the defensive line coaches, Dan Brooks and Marion Hobby, both of them have a ton of coaching experience. Uh, Dan Brooks was actually named by the AFCA as their assistant coach for the year of this year. So two coaches on that staff who earned national assistant coach recognition. And, you know, cert- certainly Robbie Caldwell, another guy on the offensive line, who I think has done a great job. So, you know, I think this Clemson program, they have a mentality that when they're developing a team, they're building their roster, uh, they're not looking at the stars. They're, they're looking at, you know, who performs the best in practice and who earns their way onto the field. You see a guy like Hunter Renfro at the wide receiver position. He was barely recruited at all. He was a he came to the program as a walk-on, and he caught two touchdowns in last year's national championship game. So Clemson, they're not going to prohibit somebody from having an opportunity just because they're a walk-on or they weren't a top recruit. They're giving everybody a chance to earn that playing time, and I, I think players are buying into that. And they're, they're really developing over the course of their time there. Can we talk about Deshaun Watson? Who? Deshaun Watson. I'm fascinated by him. And Dan, the thing I want to ask you about him is, like, we, we know how good he is. He's Heisman runner-up this year. What was he third in the Heisman last year? Yeah. Um, I want to know about Deshaun Watson, I guess, as a runner. Because we were speaking to some Ohio State guys about him. And Sam Hubbard said that when he watches Deshaun Watson on film, like he feels like Watson should maybe run even more than he does. And I guess like we know he's a talented runner, but like is he always a willing runner, if that makes sense? Or does he want to throw the ball and maybe doesn't always as eager to, to take off and run sometimes? Well, I think a lot of Clemson fans this year would agree with Sam Hubbard in that Watson should run more. Because if you look at his numbers – he ran the ball 207 times last year. He'd only run it 129 times this year. So they haven't used the quarterback run game as, as much this season. And typically this offense has been at its best when Deshaun Watson is, is running the ball well, much like seems to be the case with JT Barrett at Ohio State. Uh, this offense, it's just more dangerous when Watson's able to take off able to get outside of a pocket and he is a he is a good runner i don't i don't know that he's elite in that regard but he, he's made a lot of plays with his legs he hasn't been as effective when he has been used as a quarterback this year and you know certainly you wonder a little bit you know he's about to go to the nfl this year maybe he's protecting his body a little more maybe he's a little bit more reluctant to run the ball than he might have been last year maybe he's looking a little more for that pass than he would have last year, but I think at this point in the year, this is when they really need Deshaun to run the ball, and I think perhaps from a coach's standpoint, perhaps they've saved him a little bit. Perhaps they didn't want to overwork him too much early in the year. He's typically only run the ball in high numbers in close games against tough opponents, so I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up running the ball a lot more here in these college football playoff games. But, you know, I, I think there's probably a combination of factors that have led to him not running as much. But I think that if Clemson's going to win a national championship, they need him to run the ball effectively. Wayne Gallman looks to us on film a little bit. We've seen like a pretty shifty guy who can make some cuts. Against Pitt, he had 18 carries for 36 yards in that loss. How good is he really, and why does it seem like there's maybe been some games where he hasn't done much? Well, I think against Pitt, I mean, certainly Clemson coaches would tell you that 
Pitt stacked the box the whole game and, and made them throw the ball all game. And Clemson actually, Deshaun Watson set school records both for passing yards and passing attempts in that game. You know, that's how much they passed the ball in that game. But, you know, I, I think Gallman is a very good back. I mean, I don't know that he's at that elite level, but I, I think that he is a guy that is a, probably a better athlete than maybe he gets credit for. Definitely has some bounce to him, a uh, good burst out of the backfield, a uh, good strong runner. Uh, I think the offensive line has not been as good this year in run blocking as it was last year. I, I think that they haven't opened holes as consistently as they did in the past. And Gallman at times has even expressed frustration with the offensive line, just not getting as many holes as he did last year. But you know, he, he's a he's a very good back. I, I, you know, I think it also does go back to Watson running. I think when they're both running well. They, they make each other better because if a defense can just lock Nun Gallman, they're not worried about that threat of Watson running. He doesn't do as well, but you know, he, he's, a, he's a very good back. You know, certainly the pit game didn't go the way he would have wanted it to in terms of his yardage, but a lot of that was also because they were mostly only using him in short yardage situations. They were pretty much passing the ball that whole game, and they weren't giving him a lot of opportunities to get the ball in space and gain a lot of yards. Last question. Clemson fans, your readers, do they think they're going to win, or are they looking at Ohio State and saying, oh, no, we're in trouble? I'd, I'd say they think they're going to win. I think I think Clemson fans are pretty confident going into this game. Uh, you know, cert, certainly, you know, I think the fact that Clemson got there last year, I think probably going into last year, there maybe wouldn't have been as much confidence because it was an unforeseen thing for Clemson. But I think now that they've done it once, uh, everybody's mentality, whether they're part of a Clemson program or they're fans of Clemson, uh, they feel like, this team should now be able to take that next step to go win a national championship. Probably some more prepadation about where they can beat Alabama. We'll see if that happens if it comes to it. But I think Clemson fans feel pretty confident that Tigers can win this game and get back to the national title game. Dan the man, thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate the uh, Clemson knowledge. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks so much. All right, Dan, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, thanks to Dan Hope for uh, for helping us out with that. Um, when I think about now knowing what he's talked to us about, one of the guys we didn't really get into a lot was Mike Williams, uh, their number one receiver. And I think Ohio State fans are still having like nightmare flashbacks to what Sammy Watkins did in the Orange Bowl three years ago against Ohio State. Um, a great number one receiver like this, Bill, is this the best receiver they've faced? And... Should Ohio State be worried about a great quarterback and a great receiver? Or with Gary on Conley, Marshawn Lattimore, and Malik Hooker, are they built to handle this? It's tough to say whether or not he's the best they face because like, they faced D.D. Westbrook from Oklahoma, and D.D. Westbrook finished fifth in the Heisman voting. Um, but I think he was, he was like, injured, I think. He played, but was injured a little bit. And I think he had five catches for like 44 yards or something like that against Ohio State. Um, but I also think he's a different kind of player than Mike Williams. Mike Williams is like 6'3". Like big body, prototypical wide receiver type, um, and we've watched a very little bit of Clemson. He seems very physical. I would say he's probably the most physical receiver maybe they faced all year. And we had this discussion. He's the best receiver Ohio State's probably faced since Amari Cooper, and then before that, Sammy Watkins. Probably he's in, the, he's in that category. Although I would say, like, and I, I watched. I'm just saying this because I just recently finished watching the Michigan game because I was dragging my feet and it took me that long to watch it. Amara Darbo's good. And I thought he played pretty well, but like this year and last year against Ohio State, and like the touchdown that Amara Darbo caught in overtime, Sweet. he shook Marshawn Lattimore out of out of his shoes and like beat him off the line and then curled the back of the end zone and made an awesome catch. Um, so maybe Amara Darbo like might actually be the best receiver they faced so far this year. Um, Penn State has good one. Penn State has like a trio of pretty good receivers. Um, but I, I would feel pretty comfortable saying Mike Williams is the best, and he looks like a little bit of a monster. And I think he's. And the thing that I found interesting, and the thing that you said was the word physical. Because I don't know who's going to get matched up on him. I would. I think Gary on Conley can handle a physical receiver. I think, I think that Marshawn. I wonder about Marshawn a little bit. I, I wonder about Marshawn. My uh, more Marshawn physical. Interesting, because like my that was weird. My initial reaction to thinking who would you rather put on a 
physical guy, and maybe it's just because his hamstrings are still in my head. But I just I yeah. feel like Marshawn, and he talks very quietly, and he's like sweet, like I don't know, like he's like a nice kid. Gary Conley like has knocking like, over a six foot. Yeah. I don't know why in my head like he's a top, if he's a top five draft pick according to every NFL draft guru, man. he better be able to stop his physical receiver because that's the entire NFL. Yeah, that's true. You know, so you know if you don't, I mean, they have two great. Ohio State has two great, great. Corners, it's nuts. I can tell you who I would put on him. I would not put Denzel. Ward. Can they switch? It's yeah, the move. whole thing, yeah, right? They like switch. they switch around, and I don't think they're locked into any one spot this year. Because I, I yeah. feel like it's that's an advantage for Ohio State because they've got two very good corners and they rotate. And if Mike Williams is their best guy, keep flipping them back and forth based on who's fresher. Yeah, and I'll be curious. We've talked a lot about Gary on Conley going into the slot to cover guys the second half of the year. You sound like Mel Kuyper a little bit for that cadence you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. That Baltimore accent. <laughs> uh, is it Leggett? Jordan Leggett, tight end, yeah. In the slot? Well, him, It's it's. And this is what makes it tough in my mind. So you have Mike Williams on the outside who's an alien, and then you have Jordan Leggett who's like more of an alien, who's the tight end. Who they'll line up in the slot, and then you have like Hunter Renfro, who I don't even know how tall Hunter Renfro is, but he's just like a speedy slot guy who we've we've seen that type of player give Ohio State problems. And then they have another guy, Artavis Scott. Uh, I hope I didn't say his name wrong. Um, so they have like three legit receivers plus a monster tight end who plays more like a receiver than he does a tight end. Like it's not like an inline Jake Buck guy. It's like a I don't know Rob Gronkowski split out wide. So when you do that, right? I mean, we've seen Chris Worley cover some tight ends and be okay, right? We've seen Damon Webb cover some tight ends, but if they're going to do that regularly, do you go to nickel personnel and then is your matchup Conley on the tight end, who's basically a receiver, Ward on the little guy if he's in there, and then the matchup on the outside is Williams on Lattimore? That's what I would think, and that's what I mean. That's what it's what makes Clemson, I think, different than any team Ohio State's played this year is like. There's not one or two guys you have to account for. There seems to be four. Every skill guy is a guy you need to be worried about and account for. And you can't like sort of take gambles on who's going to cover who. Like every guy needs to be accounted for because they're all really good. So I don't know. I think you're going to see a lot of nickel. And because from what we've seen from Clemson, like they're is going any, three or four wide all the time. Right. Who's the, um, the Wisconsin tight end? Oh, Troy Fumagalli. Who yeah. I was sorry. The I forgot. I, the reason yeah. why I asked you what his name is because I didn't want to attempt to pronounce it. Yeah. He was really good. I he thought. was really good. Like, and I didn't know if that was a good comparison of somebody that Ohio State might have seen from like. I think uh, I think Mike just Mike Jasicki from Penn State. Yeah, is a better he, comparison Ohio State recruited like, that kid. So, yeah. But like, they have seen some tight ends that are are in, are pretty good. Yeah, the Big Ten has good tight ends. And Oklahoma uh, had one too. I forget what his name is, but he had, they had a good tight end as well. It's just interesting when it's not just you have a good tight end; it's when it's combined with physical receivers right. on the outside, and right. you have to come. up. Up with a way to stop all of them, and and the thing that like in talking about all this, we were saying, okay, is he the best receiver since Amari Cooper? What did Amari Cooper not have? A great quarterback. So and Marcus and Joey Ohio Bosa State, was rushing him. Ohio State faced Amari Cooper for Alabama when he had Blake Sims throwing to him. Then they beat that. Then they went and faced Marcus Mariota, but Marcus Mariota wasn't throwing to Amari Cooper. Right. The now thing that was interesting, both. just to go up on a tangent really quick about Amari Cooper, because I thought it would happen and it didn't. So, like, when Ohio State in 2014 played Michigan State, they just had, like, Duran Grant follow Tony Lippett around the field and, like, didn't play field boundary corner, which they would normally do. And I thought they would do the same against Alabama, and they didn't. They just sort of covered Amari Cooper straight up, which, like, to me said that they respected Michigan State's offense more than they respected Alabama's offense. Does that make sense? Because even though Amari Cooper's great, they weren't necessarily worried about Amari Cooper killing them because they thought the offense as a whole wasn't as scary. Right. And I think this Clemson offense is like much more talented across the board than that Alabama offense was. Okay. I think that's I think that's legit. I think this Clemson offense that had a lot of guys back from last year, um, I think is a problem. It's funny that that Clemson offense three years ago lit Ohio State up. And that was Taj Boyd, who I felt like was the undercard to Deshaun Watson. Like when Taj Boyd was at Clemson, a quarterback, he was really good, right? And we wrote a lot of stories about Taj Boyd because he had been heavily recruited by Ohio State. Russell loved Taj Boyd. And then Taj Boyd was good. Taj Boyd is not Deshaun Watson. Right. So I think this is going to be a really interesting matchup because we were saying, I mean, there were times when Ohio State's defense, for as good as it is, and we have a lot of respect for Ohio State's defense, 
had trouble with Clayton Thorson and Austin Carr for Northwestern this year. Now, they, they didn't march up and down the field the whole game, but they moved the ball pretty effectively. And, then and they had maybe, four drives of 75 yards or longer in that game. Okay, they marched up and down the field the whole game. <laughs> I mean, right? Clayton Thorson was picking them apart a little bit. He was. He looked like an NFL quarterback in that game. Like, I, I didn't even know, like, I knew who he was, but didn't think he was any good. I was like, oh, this guy's going to play in the NFL because he's tearing apart Ohio State's NFL secondary. So, as much as I think we've given, tried to give a lot of uh, props to the defenses in the Big Ten this year, and like, we made fun of, you know, D.D. Westbrook and Baker Mayfield were Heisman candidates from the Big 12 because they played no defense in the Big 12. They played defense in the Big Ten. You also aren't seeing Mike Williams and Deshaun Watson paired up every day in the Big Ten. Right, I mean, like Trace right. McSorley. Well, and go back to making your point about Blake Sims and uh, Mariota. I mean, they faced a very good receiver and a very good quarterback, but they never faced both in the same team. I right. thought that was a good thing to say. And they didn't do it against Oregon either, because wasn't Oregon missing like its top two receivers in that game? Because didn't like, like Oregon like someone had a suspended? Yeah. Oh yeah. Here's the thing: like, I feel like we're poking a lot of holes in Ohio State's defense. We always do this, and they've given up some yards. Every defense does. Number two in the country, Ohio State's defense is in touch, red zone touchdown percentage behind LSU. Um, better than Alabama, better than Clemson, better than everybody but LSU. 36 times teams have gotten into the red zone against Ohio State. They've only allowed 12 touchdowns. Um, that's pretty good. I think it's the best thing they do. Yeah. They get – and I guess I don't know why. I'm trying to think why that is. Because I feel like sometimes – Teams can move the ball on you when your secondary is weak, but then when things get bunched up, then it's yeah. Then you're good on, but their secondary is great. So I don't know if they just. I mean, if you think about nut like, up and play, yeah, no, <laughs> I think. It? Well, I think teams move the ball, not throwing to the outside guys. It's just throwing to the tight end and the slot guys. And like every now and then, you'll see a guy bust a big run, like Davion Smith did it a few times for Michigan. But the way Michigan moved the ball downfield was like throwing the Jake Butt, running with Davion Smith. We throwing to some guys in the slot. Like, they're not – the corners aren't getting beat down the field. I, I think right. maybe it happened, like, once against Oklahoma because I think Marshawn Lattimore tripped over his own feet. So, it's it's not the traditional we throw on you, we throw on you, we throw on you, and then there's no more field left to throw. I don't know. It's it's kind of peculiar, I think, that teams have been able to move the ball a little bit but not score in Ohio State. That's what Clemson's talking about right now. Yeah. If I'm Clemson's offense, if I'm Clemson's offense with – and Dan said they have four or five NFL receivers mm-hmm. and a guy who was in the top three in the Heisman the last two years and a shifty 1,000-yard running back. What I'm worried about is we end up with 600 yards of total offense and 17 points. Yeah, and I, 600 That's is a, a lot. That's a pretty big number there. But no, I think, yeah. I think like <laughs> 900. If we looked up at the end of the Fiesta Bowl and saw that Clemson had – gained more total offense than any other team Ohio State's faced all year and yet finished the day with three touchdowns, I think that's on the table and would not be surprising to me at all. I'm just trying to figure out, like, it's like ancient aliens. Like, why? Why did I say ancient aliens? Speed to the edge of the field, which we talk about all the time with Ohio State's defense. Like, you cannot get anything on the outside with them. And maybe Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson's the guy running the ball, but I think that comes into play most when the field is short and you can sort of make sure you're sturdy in the middle, and you have Jerome Baker, and you have Malik Hooker. But what's interesting to me is that, like, how sturdy in the middle are they? Well, but I think maybe the point is they're not that sturdy, actually, in the middle for 60 yards up and down the field. Yeah. But then when everything gets clogged up a little more, they have more guys there to help. You cannot – we've seen that a million times. If you're – if it's second and goal at the seven, and you do something wide, you're dead. Jabril Peppers. Try the run. And like this, Sam Hubbard caught him. It's like a lot of people also, maybe not criticize Raekwon, but like thought, hey, maybe he's not producing to the level he should be. For maybe that's also where he's valuable. You know, like yeah. when he's in these goal line situations where teams try to you know get in from within the ten yard line, and he's just a sturdy middle of defense type of guy that either forces or tempts other coaches to go outside because they don't want to run at him. I mean, there are certain things that don't show up in the stat book that can kind of change a game, and I think that might be one of them. And I guess you get you probably get Malik Hooker involved a little more in the mm-hmm. run game, moving him up at Bring safety down. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So And then Jerome Baker um, just flying around the field and making plays. And the plays, other thing, you know, too, that's like, and it's, it sucks for Dante Booker that he got hurt, but Chris Worley's a little bit different of a player than Dante Booker, probably just like a touch faster. So you have like two of those speedy outside yeah. linebackers now as opposed to just one. I think they should be recruiting safeties at linebacker 
no matter what. That's my take on that. But. Well, get, no, safeties at linebacker. We could do a whole podcast about safeties, safeties or running backs at linebacker. I like yeah. the running back thing that we talk about, like or, going to nickel. It's like when you have a safety, when you have an outside linebacker just who's the as podcast fast as a safety, you are a nickel all the time. It's just that your nickel guy also can blow people up as a yep. tackler, which is what Darren Lee and Jerome Baker can do. Um, what are we talking about? The I think Fiesta we're talking Bowl, about right? the Fiesta Bowl. All right, I w- let's go to the other side of the ball real quick. Clemson defense, Ohio State offense, and I want to go to one matchup. In particular, Isaiah Prince at right tackle has struggled. He has not had a great year. We were talking about this today. Nobody can dispute the fact he hasn't had a great year. That probably is more about the fact that Ohio State was put in a position where he had to be their starting offensive lineman because, again, we think they missed a little bit on an offensive line class or two, and they ended up on this offensive line with a true sophomore at right tackle and a true freshman at left guard, and those are the two spots on the line that have been the two weakest spots on the line thus far. That's less about Michael Jordan at left guard and Isaiah Prince at right tackle than it is about offensive line development and depth and building stuff up. So that's that's not just put it on the teenagers. The reality is, what are they going to do about Isaiah Prince at right tackle? And Christian Wilkins, is that correct? Mm -hmm. A 310 – Urban Meyer just called him the 310-pound defensive end. If Taco Charlton gave Isaiah Prince trouble in the Michigan game, what is Christian Wilkins, who is a first-team All-American, going to do in this game? We have seen it. It happened at Penn State with Prince. If you have a hole in the line, it can blow up your game plan Tired almost day. no matter what else is happening. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the biggest question for me is how they protect JT Barrett again because Clemson – not only is Christian Wilkins really good, Clemson's number two in the country in sacks. They have 46. Um, Michigan was number four. They had 44. Michigan sacked JT Barrett eight times. And Penn State sacked JT Barrett six times, five times in the second half, and I think like three times of what would have been the game-winning drive. Um, the thing about Isaiah Prince is like I don't know if it's just like technique stuff, and I don't know the ins and outs of offensive line technique, but if it's just like his first step is in the wrong direction or something like that, and that's something that's like easily fixable, then maybe they'll be okay. But I, I, I think there's too much evidence to the contrary that Isaiah Prince is going to have his hands full with Christian Wilkins or whoever they put out there on the defensive end spot at that side. I know what else they're going to do. They're going to blitz up the butt of whoever that guy is lined up over Isaiah Prince too. And that's what Michigan did a lot too. They would bring Taco Charlton and then twist the guy behind him or bring a linebacker. And Isaiah Prince like – was already overwhelmed by the guy he had the to block, and then there was another guy coming behind him. Bad news about that is, too, is that if you wanted to pick the one matchup that causes trouble for you, it's a tackle and an end. Like, that's probably the worst possible place on the field across the board of football. That you can you would help have that. guard. Yeah, it's easier to, to yeah. If you're yeah. out there on an island, again, as a tackle, I don't know if there's another play. Best receiver to shaky corner would even be preferable right. in that scenario because that guy ruins everything. Especially with a guy like Wilkins, we watched a little bit of Clemson film. That guy was all over the field in the you know thirty minutes we were watching it. And the thing that I'm I'm curious about then, second, we asked sort of Dan about this is Brent Venables as a defensive coordinator. Dan said they love to take away the thing you do best, and I don't know. I'm trying to think. Have we seen teams try to do this? But what if you just sell out? And I don't even know what it would look like. Maybe it's impossible to do. But if you say, Noel Brown, beat us. Marcus Ball, beat us. Paris Campbell, beat us. Mike Weber, beat us. JT Barrett on the ground, beat us. Curtis Samuel's not going to beat us. I think he could do that. Um, it's not – because I thought I thought when they played Michigan that like Jordan Lewis would guard Curtis Samuel on every play, and he didn't. But he guarded him quite a few times. And one play – like, and I didn't know Curtis Samuel could do this because I was always a little skeptical of like how good of a, like a route runner he actually was and whether or not he was just – like out athleting linebackers and safeties who had no business trying to cover him, he like burned Jordan Lewis's doors off on one play, and JT just missed them. But like it probably would have been a touchdown had the throw. Is that been the right. one that went over his head? Right, and like Samuel was in the slot and like did like one step one way, and Lewis bit, and Samuel was by him, and it wasn't even close. So like, and Cordray Tankersley is the good corner for Clemson. Probably not as good as Jordan Lewis, but I, like Dan said, I'll probably follow Samuel around. Samuel's going to win some of those matchups. I don't well, know. Well, I thought it was interesting that no, you, can't, you can't. I don't think Samuel's a guy that you can quote unquote shut down. The way that Dan said that they can take advantage of Clemson with backs out of the backfield and through the gut and you know up the seam of the defense sounded a lot like, well, that's exactly what Ohio State's going to try to hope to do. That's offense. their entire offense. So I thought that was a very interesting thing that he said was a thing that Clemson could be susceptible to. 
You know, it's I, I still don't have a handle on this. I'm almost eager to get to Arizona, and I think it can always get a mood from the teams on the bowl site a little bit. You get a firsthand look a little bit um, at the opposition that you, you don't know a ton about yet. Um, I think Deshaun Watson is a really interesting quarterback. There are times when Deshaun Watson looks very mortal. Yep. And it, it looks like there are times when maybe he is not as decisive as a decision maker as JT in terms of when it's time to run, when you have some pressure on you. And when he does run, he's not Lamar Jackson. He's not lightning quick. I think he's, he's a of, good runner. I'm a, but I almost can see situations. We just were watching a little bit. And I, I was watching play and I thought to myself, Sam Hubbard catches him. Yeah. I feel like he is Terrell Pryor light when it comes to him as a runner. I see him run and I kind of feel like he's Terrell Pryor where he's big and he's powerful, but he's not shifty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you see that comparison? But I think he's a better passer. I think Terrell Pryor was a more gifted, powerful runner than him, but I think he was a better passer by far. And um, I, when you were thinking about it, that's why I think he's such an interesting, intriguing NFL prospect because he's not like Braxton Miller where he's going to plant and, and zoom by you, but he's a very good – I would say he's throw first. And I think there's a For lot sure. of misconception there yeah. that he's pure dual threat. I think he's definitely – throw first and he can make plays with his legs. But I think that that's one thing that you have to realize about him is that he, he, he can get you, but he's not going to be making spin move highlight real plays against you. He's going to move the fir- move the sticks and try to beat you with his arm. And the thing that Dan said about that, the offensive line for Clemson hasn't been as good this year. The thing that's interesting to me, I feel like if Clemson's going to move the ball consistently on offense, it's going to be because, Ohio State doesn't get great pressure, and Deshaun Watson stands back there and picks him apart. And even though the best part of Ohio State's defense is its secondary, if you have time and you have multiple guys to throw to, a quarterback that good is going to pick you apart. Because, you know, corners aren't designed to win one-on-one battles on 12-yard routes every play. If If a receiver, if a quarterback has time and protection and you have multiple options in the route, you're going to win that if you're not getting pressure. So, you know, I, I, I don't know much about the Clemson offensive line, but if that's a shaky spot, you need to have Tyquan Lewis and Sam Hubbard and Jalen Holmes and Nick Bosa in the backfield. Yeah. Or I think you are looking at a possibility of 38 for 51 for 411 yards and four touchdowns. Yeah, I think that that's – yeah, definitely on the table. Um, not to change the subject, but I just know because we want to wrap up, I think, in a little bit. Okay. I think we need to talk about JT Barrett just for a few few minutes, like two or three minutes. And the stuff, Doug, you were talking with Tim Beck about yes. with JT as it pertains to Clemson's like very multiple kind of confusing defense I thought was interesting. And you, like, you had a, a thought on that, and I don't know if you will have written the story by the time this podcast posts, but I thought maybe you'd want to share – what Tim Beck was saying about JT as it pertains to playing this Clemson defense. You get bonus content in the podcast. Sometimes you get the content before the people who only read the stories. Brett Venables and Clemson, they are a varied defense. They don't give you the same look. Sometimes you'll hear about a defense, like a Pat Narduzzi defense, right, at Michigan Mm -hmm. State when he was there. Mark D'Antonio was kind of like, they don't do a lot of fancy stuff. They do what they do really well. Clemson's the opposite of that. They do a ton of fancy stuff. They give you a ton of different looks. And the idea that I'm going to write and that I was talking with Tim Beck about is, is this the perfect chance to face a defense like that? Because A, you have a month to prepare and not a week. And B, because you have a veteran quarterback. And the best thing about JT Barrett is his decision-making. If you had Cardale Jones in this game, who's going to sling it around and throw it over people's heads, like in a good way, throw deep and have a huge arm, maybe against a defense that gives you 10 different looks, he wouldn't be the guy you want. For as much as JT Barrett is not a gunslinger, has not made some throws, has been hesitant this year, it's possible that JT Barrett, with a month of preparation, is the exact guy to go against a defense like this. And we might be setting up for JT Barrett to play his best game because the circumstances of what he's facing is a perfect matchup for him. I think this is a fast, like, JT Barrett has become a very polarizing player, I think. And, like, the effect that this one game is going to have on his legacy as an Ohio State quarterback is incredibly interesting to me. 
Like I, I, people, new podcast. I know that'll be that'll be after the fact. I think, but like, do you guys agree? Like, this is like going to like whatever, not, yes, whatever yes. you think of JT now. Like, this game is going to define. I think there's a large proportion of Ohio State fans that don't think he was good enough to lead him to the two, to the this team to the 2014 championship when healthy. And I think there's a large portion of the fan base that thinks JT Barrett has regressed from an aggressiveness standpoint, a confidence standpoint, and just the ability to you know, throw the ball downfield. And whether that's accurate or not, we'll leave that for our next podcast. But if he goes out and they lose this game and he doesn't play a particularly good game, I think I agree with you, Bill. I think his entire legacy and the way that people view him is going to shift. Because he's going to own 35 records in the record book, but right. he'll never win the game that people needed him to win. And it will affect – it would be one of those games if they lose and he doesn't play well where it affects your memory backwards. Yeah. Because I think it then – what you were saying, Ari, yeah. some people think that maybe they wouldn't have beaten Alabama if JT was the quarterback. More people, More people will. That. It would yeah. feed that, maybe cement that. And it's that not that idea. fair because it's like you can't say that they never win the game they need to. I mean, they did beat Michigan. He's 3 0. They beat Michigan. Oklahoma. They beat Michigan State in 2013. His Michigan, like, the Michigan State game in 2014 was one of the best. Games you'll ever see a quarterback play the way JT Barrett played on the road that night. Do you guys think that he's capable of it again? I do. I said this. We talked about this earlier in yeah. the year. I think. I think he has that in him still. I don't know what needs to happen for it to come out. But what do you think? I don't know if he's re- regressed. It just looks the same. Well, I, I don't think know. that the talent talent around him is not as good as it was in 2014. And I think he's got a little bit of happy feet because the protection's been pretty terrible all year. But if the protection holds up, I think he has that kind of game in him. I think it could be possible, too, that I think it helps Ohio State and helps JT Barrett when he feels confident. And this is the first time in his career, because last year the Fiesta Bowl, I mean, it just it didn't, it didn't matter, really, mm-hmm. where he's going to have a month to prepare for an exam like this, like a test that really matters, a test that defines him as a quarterback. And I think JT Barrett probably likes having a month to study for that and probably enjoys studying for that. And he might study so hard and so well that when he steps on that field, he's going to feel so good about himself. We may not see him double pump once the whole night because he might, every look they give him, he might look at it, say, I know exactly what this is and I know exactly what we're going to do. Boom. And then I think in combination of that, it's not like he hasn't been waiting for this his entire life. Absolutely. So I think that that's part of it, too. And I thought it was interesting during the press conference on uh, Thursday. Uh, the, today's the December 15th. I just wanted to say the date because I wasn't sure when you're posting this, Dollaby. Yeah. That he goes, well, last year I was kind of a – or in the playoff run in 2014, I was kind of an aide and I helped and you know was around to help people and you know get them ready. Now I've got to get myself ready physically, mentally, and all that stuff. I think he – seemed comfortable and relished that fact that he can finally prepare himself. And JT Barrow, we know about him. I think preparation's his thing. And I think I agree with you in the sense that he might come out feeling good about himself because the most prepared team wins, right, Urban? That's what it says in the in the doors of the Woody. Yeah. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to the Buckeye Talk podcast. Check Cleveland.com slash OSU for all of our stories. We appreciate you guys sticking with us all year. Our podcast audience, this is the second year we've done a podcast. The podcast audience has more than doubled from a year ago, and we really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, We have a lot of fun doing the podcast. We think it's a great supplement to the stories we write during the week. We all have huge egos, and we love hearing ourselves talk, especially me. So um, we appreciate you guys listening. For Ari Wasserman, for Bill Landis, I'm Doug Maurice. Happy holidays. That was Buckeye Talk.